Well, hello, friends and faithful podcast listeners. We got a good one for you here today. I have Ian Morgan Cron on the line, and he's kind of known as the Enneagram dude. He trains leaders literally all over the world through Zoom, through traveling with teams, organizations, and you've probably heard of his book, The Road Back to You. If you're looking for an amazing introduction to the Enneagram. It's what I hand out. It's what Julie hands out. Uh, I've actually given it away like candy to people in the last few years. It's been really helpful for me, really helpful for our team here at Stay Forth. And Julie is actually a trainer. So if you're interested in going a little bit deeper, um, you can go on our website and uh, get trained through Julie uh, live and in person or live on Zoom. So this conversation, we talk about crisis. We talk about where we've come from in 2020, where we're hoping to go this next year, some of the mistakes we can make along the way as teams around the Enneagram. There is good and bad of the mass popularization of the Enneagram. And and I'll just be honest, I think without the Enneagram, I would not have navigated 2020 very well. It was a challenging year, even with self-awareness and self-knowledge. I learned to engage instead of escape. I learned several things that I really had to sit in and slow down and have some silence and stillness. And I would not have known that without the Enneagram that helped me to process some of the losses, the frustrations and disappointments of this year. A big fan of Ian, big fan of the Enneagram, big fan of his work around it as well. Nobody really knows it on the vernacular level like he does. So uh, I love this conversation. I think you will as well. If you enjoy this, Maybe just send this to a friend. If there's somebody that doesn't quite understand the Enneagram, kind of what's behind it, uh, maybe feels pressurized to read a book, take a test, this would be a great place to start. So I love this conversation. I hope you will also enjoy my interview with the Enneagram dude, Ian Morgan Cron. Well, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So before we really do a, a deep dive and before we dig in on the Enneagram, I wanted to just kind of check in on you personally. How did 2020 affect you and, and how did this crazy pandemic uh, also affect your work professionally? Yeah, well, like everybody else, this has been a uh, an anxious uh, year. Uh, there's uh, been just a whole set of unique challenges that have come that are completely and utterly new. We don't have a whole lot of training in what we've been through. Uh, and uh, I have had COVID, which was a very unpleasant experience. I can mm. tell you that it is real, contrary to uh, popular opinion uh, among many. Uh, and I do not recommend getting it. And you guys continue to do the podcast, doing a lot of stuff from home uh, in the studio, I would imagine, this year? Oh, yeah. Tons of podcast work, tons of corporate work. Uh, we've just moved from live settings to uh, Zoom settings. Lots of consulting work. We've released a brand new course called True You. So there's a whole host of things uh, beyond that that we've been doing. And uh, so actually, we've been very adaptive and, and tried to make the best of what we have. And I think in some ways, we've done more in, in during COVID than we did before. That's what I'm hearing from so many different people. I'm curious from you, how does that change the game? Not being physically in the room, um, but you know, being through a screen, especially in those team trainings, how's it different? Well, it's not optimal. Um, I, <clears throat> my personality is such that I actually really like being with people. Um, it's just so much more engaging. Uh, you have opportunity in between sessions to talk with people, coffees, meals, uh, 
you know, there's nothing like being in a, in a room with people. We're social creatures. We need to um, spend time with others. And uh, I, I can't read faces on Zoom like I can in person. I, you know, there's, there's a whole host of challenges. That said, uh, we're still doing very effective work, and I'm very, very pleased with it. Sure. Awesome. So, Ian, take me back to the moment that you realized that this thing called the Enneagram is incredibly powerful. What were you thinking? Where were you? What were you feeling in that moment? I was actually in graduate school in the 1990s, maybe 1994, roughly. And I happened upon a book about the Enneagram while I was on retreat in the mountains of Colorado. And I had time, I began to read it, you know, and I was in grad school studying counseling psychology. And I remember thinking to myself when I, when I discovered the book, like, where's this been? Um, this is really powerful stuff. And I had been studying psychometrics and statistics and abnormal psychology and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, well, that stuff's wonderful and necessary, but man, this is a very quick and efficient and accessible tool to help people who don't aren't you know studying to become psychotherapists and incredibly useful and immediately actionable and uh so that was a a a revelation to me and then of course i went on to study the enneagram um and uh and of course write a book about it the road back to you so my introduction to the enneagram was andrew bronson uh said hey there's this book and his exact words i think you'll dig it and so he sent it to me and you know how it is. I mean, I get piles of, of books that are ARC, you know, advanced release copies. And it was kind of one of those that was like, yeah, I pushed aside a little bit. My first take at it, Ian, was, whoa, this nailed me. This is completely on point. And then, oh man, too close for comfort. I'm out. So I literally had enough info to know quickly that I was a seven. And then I went, nope, too close for comfort, pushed it aside uh, and then, of course, it surged back up. My wife uh, probably dug it even more than I did. Uh, and so, I mean, that it has just been, um, you know, since then, so revealing, so helpful, so terrifying, all the things we felt around that. But I'm curious for you, did you have any dreams or desires or um, hints that that book would go crazy and sell so many copies? You know, publishing is such a funny field. You know, I've read, uh, you know, I've read so many books that should have been blockbusters that sold 10,000 units. I've, I've read terrible books that became, you know, overnight, you know, totally. blockbusters and, and, you know, much to my disappointment. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, luck of the draw, right? Um, it's been a wonderful unexpected life-changing surprise and for which I'm really, really grateful. And there's nothing like going to bed at night and getting up in the morning, realizing that the work you do is enjoyable, it's profitable, and it really helps people, legitimately helps people, right? That gives you a great deal of satisfaction in this life and a good sense of meaning and, and, uh, which we all need in in the work that we undertake. So I'm, I feel very blessed with it. So, I'm sure hopes every, every author, I'm, I'm an author, every author hopes it does something, but has this like blown you away or did you know it had that kind of potential to, to sell that many copies and help that many people? I have to be honest and told you I had a, a real sense. I, I just was sort of, I'll tell you what happened. My, my agent was pressuring me to write a book. Mm-hmm. 
I couldn't think of anything to write about at the time. And I was at a stop sign. I know exactly where the stop sign is. Uh, and I pulled up the stop sign and I went, wait a minute. No one has written about the Enneagram, particularly that in a faith-friendly way, um, in 20 plus years since the late 90s when Richard Rohr wrote a book about it. Actually, even not the late 90s, late 80s. And I was like, wait a minute someone needs to write that book and that book needs to be a primer. It, it can't be another 500 page book about the Enneagram that's, you know, dense, but content rich, but not very user, you know, reader friendly. And uh, I thought, you know what, that could kill it out there. <laughs> and sure enough, that's Nailed what it. happened. So I was, a, yeah, I was a little, I have to say, I was a little sort of attuned to the fact that it had a better chance or probability that you know a higher probability that it would do better than lots of other books that i had written yeah there you go well, I, 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 did, I didn't know i didn't know how much yeah <laughs> sure. i didn't know how much but you know pleasantly surprised sure that's awesome well it's been so helpful to so many i handed out like candy to people it's a great deep dive um or, or it's a great 1.0 for people that then go what's next what about this you know and that's obviously a a different conversation right after the book and we'll we'll get into that i'm curious uh i'm seeing you know kind of for good or for ill mass popularization uh, of the enneagram so what is the good part of that and what is the dangerous part of that yeah well i mean i think that the the good part is is that it's awakening people to the fact that self-knowledge is uh, a key predictor of success in life, right? Um, and the more self-awareness people develop, the more people learn about other types, they begin to appreciate difference. It, it elevates empathy and compassion for other people. One of the great things about the Enneagram is that it, it not only reveals what's best about you, it also reveals what's not best about you, mm -hmm. right? So that you can begin to uh, uh, work in cooperation with God on, on repairing blind, blind spots and places in your life that are broken and continue to fuel self-sabotaging, self-defeating behaviors. Uh, and that prevents you from loving others and yourself and God in, in really healthy ways, right? So. You know, that's the that's the upside. The downside, of course, is is that, you know, the moment something enters into the public conversation in a powerful way, you're going to get all kinds of opportunists running around, you know, mm. self-proclaimed experts, uh, you know, people throwing up a shingle saying I'm an Enneagram coach when, you know, they've taken a one day workshop on it, you know. Um, and of course, you know, people can, can learn about the Enneagram and simply end at the point of, oh, I know my type and that's just who I am. And, uh, they use it as an excuse for continuing in really poor behaviors, uh, or they use it as a weapon against other people and their types. And, uh, so of course there's always people that will misuse it and you just hope, and I think this has been the case that most people will use it. Uh, in a way that's really responsible and great versus in a way that's uh, less than helpful to themselves or others. Mm. How have you seen it be helpful to people in the midst of this crisis? Well, I mean, uh, boy, I've done a lot of podcasts on this topic of the Enneagram and stress or, you know, things like that. I mean, look, the more self-knowledge you have, the more you can weather storms, you know, yeah. Uh, the more self-awareness you 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 understand yourself, and you understand triggers. You you understand what your type does typically when it's under stress. Uh, 
And then, and because of that, then you can begin to mitigate some of the unhelpful aspects of, of your type. Um, it, you know, lots of us are stuck at homes with, with uh, partners and children, and that leads to potential conflict uh, flaring up. And so if you know your type, that that's really going to help you in those situations. So I, I can enumerate lots of other ways. Uh, that's just a, a small sample. But, you know, again, uh, the, the simple answer is the more self-awareness, self-knowledge that you have, the more equipped you are to face difficulties. The less you have, the more likely it is that you're going to go banging guardrail to guardrail through people's lives in ways that are destructive. Mm, yeah, so good. Yeah, we've we've seen that. I've seen both uh, this year. And honestly, I've experienced some of both uh, this year. It helps me recover quicker maybe and to go, whoa, you know, kind of yeah. like third-party view. Man, this is me acting unhealthy right now. What's going on? What's at the root of that? Mm-hmm. I'm hearing from a lot of leaders, Ian, who say, this has been so powerful for me. I want to take this into our team, our organization. What's a healthy or proper way to do that? And of course, what's the wrong way to do that? Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Most of my work is in the corporate realm. So I do a ton of consulting, workshop leading, helping teams to uh, maximize their potential, to help people realize their gifts. Um, working with leadership teams to uh, help them uh, lead better in, in their organization or their corporation. Um, and so I say a couple of things. One is, is that, you know, key stakeholders actually need to uh, do the work first for themselves, right? They learn about it. I think bringing a workshop leader to do a, a day long or a day and a half with teams is a very efficient way of bringing the, you know, letting the Enneagram sort of work its way into the culture of an organization or team, whether it's in a church or it's in a nonprofit or a for-profit company. Um, and uh, to me, that's the, the best way. I think um, the wrong way is for a leader uh, to get their hands on the Enneagram and say, boy, I've really got to get my people on board here, you know, and, without doing their own work. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, okay, I got to go out and fix people with this thing. And that is no way to do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, the best way, you know, it's sort of advertising by attraction. You, you really actually need to do your own work first and then say, okay, now, now is the time for me to introduce this to my people because I've seen the, the, the positive benefit in, in my own life. Um, you know, the Enneagram is very easy to learn, but it's very hard to master. And I think the the best way is is to really utilize uh, people um, to come in who who really have a grasp on the on the system, and uh, and when you do it, it honestly, I'm not fooling, I'm not self promoting or self marketing here. It really will change your organization from top to bottom. I've seen it over and over and over again, and it's just so tremendously helpful. Yeah. So talk about as it starts to change, I've started to see that as well, as that starts to change teams and how people interact, and especially in these kind of times uh, during this crisis, eventually the hiring conversation comes up and people say, do I, should I, how do I take this into account when hiring? What would you say to that, Ian? Well, I wouldn't put it as number one. You know, sometimes people will say, oh man, you know, I'm going to use this for hiring people in HR. 
And I'm always like, well, you know, number one, hire people for character. Mm. You know, I mean, because you could be a one, two, six, eight on the Enneagram and be a person of bad character. It's no right. guarantee. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, you can find a one will steal from you. It comes you know from all mean? of us. Or, yeah. Exactly. You know, it's not like, uh, boy, this type is going to be perfect for my team. Maybe. Um, but understand that um, hire for character first. Then, then secondly, I'd say hire for competency. You know, you know, it's nice to have your type, but if you want a coder, it'd be a really good idea if you hired somebody who is a really good coder, right? yeah. Yeah. regardless of their types. And then maybe you could begin to be thinking about, you know, okay, who is this person? What's their personality style? Will it fit on my team? Do we have a space here that actually could benefit from having their unique view of the world? Um, but again, I, like I wouldn't put personality as the number one thing uh, on the list of hierarchies. Uh, I would probably say, you know, it's a it's the third order thing. That's not to say it's it's not super important. I'm just saying, go for character and competency first, and then let's talk about personality styles. Sure. Yeah. So when somebody is is saying, "Man, I really am starting to see the power of this," maybe they've read the road back to you. What do you think the path is after that? What do you tell somebody? who really, like you say, is beginning to do the work themselves, what would be a pathway to that over the next few years that they could deepen their understanding in the Enneagram? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of resources out there for doing a deeper dive into the Enneagram. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I have a, or I didn't mention, I have a a new course that came out this year called True You. And the purpose of it is, is to take people sort of the next level in to understanding what the transformational growth path is for their specific type. So you know, for you as a seven, you could just go and cherry pick my course on sevens. It's a 90 minute course, right? And, uh, you, you know, you could actually have, you know, your whole team do it a la carte, right? You know, you, oh my God, I got a one, I got a six, I got a five, I'm going to get that course for them. Um, there are a tremendous number of books that do a deeper dive into the sort of the minutia of the Enneagram. Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Complete Enneagram, would be one among many. Um, and so I, you know, that, but you've kind of already said it, it's not enough to know your type, right? Um, you should know all the types. Secondly, uh, you have to begin to start to do the transformational work, um, because information isn't transformation. If you, if, if all you know is your type, eh, it's just information, right? But you have to start digging down and saying, okay, what are the specific challenges of my type? What are those parts of my my type that are more the shadow aspect of it and how do i begin to live with more self-awareness the ability to catch myself in the game of my type uh to regulate the negative patterns the self-defeating habitual patterns of thinking acting and feeling that are actually uh working powerfully against my best interests Mm. That's good. Um, let's talk about marriage for a minute. Marriage is taking it really hard uh, right now. I'm hearing about a lot of stress and weight on marriages. At the moment of this recording, our kids are learning from home again. And there's a reason we are not homeschool parents, Ian. I'm just saying, like, we're barely holding it together. So it's just a hard, it's just a hard time to be alive. And it happens. Our spouses see and feel that first in us. If somebody does the work, let's say for five years, 10 years, 15 years, Enneagram work, what are some of the things that you think rise out of that marriage that could really, you know, kind of take it to the next level in terms of intimacy and, and growth and care and empathy for one another? What are some of those 
things that will surface when both of those uh, spouses do the work. Well, I mean, I've experienced this firsthand. I mean, our, our marriage uh, has been, in com- our parenting, has been completely revolutionized by the Enneagram. And, you know, and I'm not saying that the Enneagram is the Rosetta Stone of life. You know, it, it, it's not like it's some, some magic thing. Um, it's not. It's not even, you know, it's not perfect, but it's incredibly useful, right, uh, in terms of being a model of, uh, of personality. What my wife and I experienced was uh, a rapid um, elevation in our appreciation for difference. Um, We found that after 25 years of marriage that we really didn't know each other as well as we thought. Hmm. And it was such a revelation to us. Uh, We began to, we, we, we were given a vocabulary or a vernacular that we could turn to, to talk about our differences, which was very, very powerful. It it, it was no longer, you know, sometimes, you know, criticizing or prosecuting uh, each other for, you know, our differences or places where we rubbed against each other. Now we can say, Hey, you know, you as a nine, I'm really picking up. This is what's happening right now. So it became less personal and more helpful. Um, And of course that the compassion, the, the empathy, uh, our ability to challenge each other, our ability to laugh with mm. each other about our unique quirks and, <laughs> and tendencies in the world. I mean, it has really, and with our children, gosh, we frequently say to each other, man, I wish I'd known this earlier. Um, mm. It sure would have helped. Uh, and, you know, so it's, you know, in terms of relationships, which is what occupies about 90% of our thinking, right? Uh, it, it it has the opportunity completely upend your world in the best of ways. Mm. Uh, man, I, I so echo that with parenting for our kids. We look at them instead of saying, man, you are so whatever, or you're being so bad. We go, oh man, there's that. There's the trigger here. Here's what our kid needs. So, I mean, just the language of it has been literal, practical tips on how to love our kids. Here's what's going on. It has been transformative for us. And yeah, again, I wish I would have found that first year of marriage. It could have been really, really helpful. I think we'd have stumbled a whole lot less in those few first few years. Uh, I'm curious for you, Ian, what are, what are yeah. some of the like worst applications of the Enneagram that you've ever heard? I'm sure people have made all kinds of excuses or said all kinds of dumb comments. I mean, you've, I'm sure heard it all. What are some terrible applications of the Enneagram? You mentioned one, which is using the Enneagram as a primary tool for hiring or for firing. I've mm. seen that a bunch of times where it's like, oh, I'm going to let him go because he's a, or she's a such and such on the Enneagram and we don't need that right now. Or they're on the low side of their number, you know, or, or that person is a five and therefore, you know, I need to put them in a room by themselves and you know what I mean? And, yeah. and they're not probably <laughs> leaders. And so, you know, people are more complicated than their personality. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've met great five leaders. How about Bill Gates? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I've met uh, great, you know, not all great leaders are threes, sevens, or eights. Sure. Um, I've met lots of others. Our best presidents have been nines. Yeah. My, our most effective ones. And there's a disproportionate number of nines in, in president of the United States. So, Again, I think that's, you know, sort of applying, I would say this just in general, 
the moment you start using these as stereotypes rather than types, mm-hmm. you're going to start misusing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are more complicated. And just because you, you know somebody's personality type doesn't mean you actually know them. Mm. Yeah. It's more, people are more complicated than their personality. Um, it will give you insight. Uh, I would say this. The Enneagram gives you a low resolution picture of the internal world of other people. Now, that means that it might give you 10% more insight than you had before you knew the Enneagram. But 10% is a giant leap on the evolutionary scale, right, mm-hmm. of, of knowledge. But it doesn't give you 90% of, you know, knowledge of the interior world of other people or 60%. You know, it's just going to up your game in a very, very significant way at a, in a very efficient and quick way. But it's, you know, like I said earlier, it's not the Rosetta Stone, uh, but it sure helps a lot. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, we get a lot of questions about, um, you know, typing yourself. Maybe I thought it was this and I'm not, I've heard you say this before. I think it'd be really helpful. Um, you had a slow process of realizing your type. Can you walk us through that, what that was like, and then yep. eventually what it was like to land on your own type? I'm a therapist. I'm an Episcopal priest. I, you know, I'm a trained spiritual director. You, you'd think that maybe I'd have come down with my type pretty darn fast. Right. Mm-hmm. But actually it took me 10 months. Wow. Um, and I got really stuck between a three, four, and seven. And uh, I could not figure out why am I not able to figure this out, you know? Um, then I began studying subtypes. Now, let me just explain that to your, your audience for a second. Uh, there are nine core types uh, in the Enneagram, but each type has three subtypes. In, in the case, of, let's say, of fours and sixes, those three subtypes are so different from each other that they might as well be their own numbers. Wow. So... There are actually 27 types. Um, and so when I started studying the subtypes, I actually realized that, oh, I'm a subtype of a four. So I'm a four, but I'm a particular kind of four that actually is called the sunny four. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not that kind of stereotype of the four, you know, kind of wandering around, smoking clothes, cigarettes, reading poetry. Um, I'm, I'm actually... In many ways, I, I look like a three or a seven sometimes, but but my unconscious motivation is is true to uh, all three fours. Mm, that's good, um, man. We could go so so deep on this. I, I kind of want to zoom out for you just a little bit. I'm sure, you've learned a lot about yourself um, this year, but as you zoom out ten years from now, Ian, we're in the year twenty thirty, and you look back. How do you hope people said that you lived and led, and of course adapted? Um, to this massive challenge we face this year? Yeah. You know, um, there's a question I like to encourage leaders to ask themselves a lot, maybe multiple times a day as they move through it and have different interactions with with other people. Um, In different situations, to stop and ask yourself the question, what does love require of me right now? and I just think that's a very, very powerful, you know, question that gives, will, will make you stop and, and really consider the moment. Um, I would I would hope that this year that I I answered that question well, uh, that I, I I just kept asking myself, what does love require of me uh, in in this moment, and and adapt around that question. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that we look back or I look back on this time and, and, and say that I tried to reverse the tide of anger, hatred, uh, political bigotry. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like I just yeah. was a different voice, a, a kind, empathic, compassionate um, voice that was not allowing myself to be dragged into uh, fear and enmity, but really into a place of, of trying to uh, help the world heal, appreciate difference and uh, create bonds of, of kindness and love, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I have succeeded at that, but I'd, I'd like to think if I could look back that that I would say, well, for the most part, I did. Man, that's really good. What does love require of me right now in this moment? Um, and what a year it's been. Yeah. Thanks so much for so many of your tools, uh, what you do. Um, remind folks where they can find you in, in all of the places doing all the things around the Enneagram. Sure. They, they can go to my website, Ian Morgan Cron, which is I-A-N-M-O-R-G-A-N-C-R-O-N.com. Uh, there they can find my Enneagram assessment. They can find, uh, you know, links to my courses. They can uh, learn how they can get me to come to their area and do a workshop. I've already had COVID, so I'm a little cooler about travel now. <laughs> um, and uh, they can, uh, yeah, get my book, The Road Back to You. And of course, there's my podcast, Typology. Uh, which is great is uh thank you by the way that's that's wonderful of you to say so so those are that's all that people get of course across my social channels at ian morgan cron awesome so uh wanted to leave you with this um as this airs it's kind of goal setting season and a lot of people are treating 2021 as kind of the rebound relationship like last one didn't work out but man i think this next one should be i'm going to distract myself from the pain. Maybe I don't have to deal with the pain if I have something to look forward to. Uh, And so I have all kinds of fears, I think, for the ways that leaders are goal setting or not goal setting. Um, And so I think all kinds of fear and pain and dysfunctional ways uh, are coming out around that. What would you say to leaders around goal setting come out of, you know, some of the pain and crises uh, of this year? You've been a therapist for many years. What are some ways that you think we might hold 2021 um, as we go back into something else, not, not a new normal, probably a new different. What's some advice you have for leaders and how to hold this year that is 2021? You know, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, there, there, there's a wonderful uh, Christian mystic. His name was Evelyn Underhill, 20th century theologian thinker, really, really brilliant. She, she once said that most of us spend the majority of our time conjugating the verbs to want to have and to do when the fundamental verb in the spiritual life is to be. Wow. And I, I would fear that, that people would just go screaming off into the new year with a whole list of to do's and to wants and to haves rather than focus on what does it mean just to be? Who am I? Uh, what errand has God assigned to me to run in this world? How can I uh, um, continue to grow in self-knowledge and self-awareness? Set your intentions on, make that the priority, not to want to have or to do, but to be in the world. I I think that would be an exciting way to, to approach life come January 1st. Awesome. 
Well, Ian, thanks so much. Thanks for your work. Thanks for who you are and actually how you've impacted my wife and I and many others who are listening. So appreciate you so much. Cheers, man. Thank you so much. So long.